Well, it's good to see you guys, and I just got to say, I, I got to get this off my chest. God is good. God is a wonderful God. He has been good to me personally. He has forgiven me of all of my wickedness and sins. He doesn't hold it against me anymore. He's given me resurrection, life, and inheritance. I love God. He's my favorite, <laughs> and I'm glad we get to worship him together. I just, I just had to testify to that before we moved on. This is bu- bubbling up in me. Today we come to a turning point in our series. Up to this point, as you guys know who've been here uh, with us, we've been talking about our identity as the collective people of God, and now Peter is going to make a turn in the letter. Uh, Peter is going to lay out instructions now on how the church is to conduct herself in light of who God has made her to be. So particularly the next three weeks, but the rest of his epistle, this is about how are we going to conduct ourselves now since this is who we are. And so today we are looking at how to live in the civic sphere of society. That's hard to say that three times real fast. We're looking at how to live in the civic sphere of society. So if you would, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God. Let's pray, family. God, we love you. And we say you are king. You're the boss. You're the king of our life. And you're the king of your church. And we humble ourselves before you today. We submit our will to your will today. God, I ask that you would speak to us today. And tell us who we are. Tell us what is good. Tell us what is right, because we don't know what that is until you tell us. We get kind of mixed up on that. We get kind of confused during the week on what that is. So we need you to talk to us today, and we thank you that you're a speaking God, you're a living God, and you're still speaking to us today, your people today. We thank you for that. So Lord, would you begin now just to uh, soften hearts, unstop ears, And tell us good things. You're a good God. We worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. The travel guidebook, Lonely Planet, is the largest of its kind. Have you guys ever heard of Lonely Planet? Raise your hand. Have you ever heard of Lonely Planet? One, two, three. Okay, all right. 
Lonely Planet, oh, so I'm going to educate you. Lonely Planet is the largest travel guidebook company of its kind. It's considered required reading for any serious tourist or explorer or backpacker that is exploring and traveling uh, across the globe. Lonely Planet was uh, founded by Maureen and Tony Wheeler back in 1972 after the young married couple finished a long trek through Asia. There they are. It's a cute couple of hippies right there, and they decided to write this little book. Uh, Their first book was a mere 94 pages, hand-stapled, by the way. And it was intended to pass on practical advice to amateur travelers who had little money and had little cultural knowledge to ensure their enjoyment, efficiency, and also safety as foreigners that were traveling through uh, Asia. It was a practical guide for living as a foreigner in a host country so that you would have the maximum amount of enjoyment while you were there and experience and cause the minimal amount of trouble while you were there. That's what this whole little booklet uh, was that they wrote. And that's kind of what the Apostle Peter has written for us today. This is his Lonely Planet travel guidebook for foreigners. How does the church live among and interact with an unbelieving society in a way that maximizes God's glory and minimizes unnecessary troubles? And so that's why he provides an answer for us on that very important question. And he's going to be doing that for the next several weeks. This is what he's unpacking. See, here's the thing. It would be really easy for us as Christians to start to think like this. Well, you know what? If I'm part of a holy nation, like Peter says I am last week, right? If I'm part of a holy nation, then it doesn't matter how I live in a pagan nation, which is where I live. It'd be really easy for Christians to start to think, well, if I really am a foreigner, then I'm afraid to separate from and abandon this society. This is not my home. Or if Christ is our ultimate king, then we must be free to resist being ruled by any human. And guys, that is a recipe for unbelievers to start despising the church, who, by the way, already act a little suspicious to begin with. And Peter knows that. He's going to start talking to us about that. Peter tells us this. Christians are called to live honorable lives among unbelievers in society. It's pretty simple theme. But he's going to unpack that today in the next few weeks. Christians are called to live honorable lives among unbelievers in society. Now Peter lays out basically his lonely planet guidebook for us. He gives us some general categories. He's not going to go into a lot of specific details, but he's going to give us some general categories for how we are to live honorably among unbelievers. And the first thing he tells us is this. Christians are to submit to civil authorities. Christians are to submit to civil authorities. Look at verses 12 through 14. Peter says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, God's will for Christians is that we would do good in whatever society that we find ourselves presently in, including thoroughly pagan societies, which is the situation that the church found itself in. In First Peter's or in Peter's day, part of us quote doing good is submitting to civil authorities, whether that's the highest level of authority or various lower levels of authority. The apostle tells us that in general, in general, the people of God should have a posture of submission towards civil authorities, not one of resistance, and that means that for the most part. Children uh, or ch- Christians should have a reputation among unbelievers for seeking to obey the government so that society remains stable. Now, to be sure, Peter is not commanding unquestioning obedience to the government in every situation. That's not what he's saying here. Nor does this forbid us from critiquing those in authority while we are obeying them. We are to do that. It's part of the church's job. Are you doing your job as God has instituted you? But Peter adds this asterisk to our obedience. It's on the tail end if you look at verse 14. It's this little asterisk. We are to submit to civil authorities that generally punish evil and generally promote what is justice and what is good in society. But when they are no longer able to do that, then Christians are no longer able to obey. We just can't do it. But the emphasis here is on civil obedience, not civil disobedience. What makes, a re- what makes this a, a particularly remarkable command coming from Peter is that the officials that Peter mentions are non-Christians in their religious practices. They do some things that are really offensive to Christians. And by the way, they're also not very friendly to Christians. They're not sympathetic right now to Christians. And Peter tells us, Obey him anyway. Obey him anyway. See, a person in authority does not have to share our religious beliefs to receive our obedience. An authority does not have to make life easy for Christians in order to receive our obedience. A person does not have to treat us with respect when they interact with us in order to receive our obedience. Peter says that Christians are to have a general willingness to obey those in authority. And why? Not because of who they are. Not because of their character. And not because of the office that they hold. He doesn't mention that here. What's he say? Because of the Lord and the office he holds. Isn't that interesting? For the sake of the Lord. So that's what we appeal to. We, we do this. The Lord means, by the way, king. And it usually refers in the New Testament to Christ. So think of Lord, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Christ. We submit to civil authorities that don't like us and sometimes pass laws that we don't agree with and we don't appreciate because Jesus, our king himself, Submitted to civil authorities. That's why. And we honor the Lord when we act like our Lord 
in the earth. Does this make sense? And here's why this matters, guys. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, all people, without an exception, have a streak of anarchy working in them, naturally. And by the way, that doesn't just magically go away when you become a born-again Christian. Am I right? That didn't just go poof. And it's working in all of us. If we are honest, and I, and I hope we can be honest when we gather together here. I hope we don't put on airs that we're better than we really are. I hope we believe in a gospel of grace. If we're honest, our default mode is to resent and to resist any kind of authority. High level, low level, doesn't matter, right? We resist it. We resist it in saying, now that's an infringement on my personal freedom. That is an infringement on my very dignity of my personhood. I don't like it. There's this impulse, guys, inside each and every one of us, myself included, that just says, you know what? I will be in ultimate control of my life. I will not be governable. No one tells me what to do in my home. I know none of you have ever said that. <laughs> but it's, it's an impulse in all of us. Am I right or am I wrong? The world says that is a good impulse. The world says that's the impulse of freedom. That's the impulse of survival. Don't tread on me. Peter says that's the impulse of the flesh. And it is waging war against your soul, oh, and your neighbors. See, that's the anarchist impulse. I will resent and resist authority until you give me good reason to submit. And only then will I. The people of God should have this impulse. We will submit to your authority even though we don't always agree with you until you give us good reason to resist. Because Christ is our Lord. And we don't say that because we're afraid, and we don't say just so it'll go easier for us. We say that with confidence, because Christ is our Lord. Like confident smile on our face. If the God of the universe, the King of the planets who answers to no one, if he can submit himself to sinful humans in a ridiculous trial <laughs> during his time on earth, then I think you and I can do the same thing by faith in that Lord. Christians are to be good for society, not threats. We are to be pleasing aroma, not a stench in the nostrils, because we, in general, obey civil authorities. That is a life that both, uh, both honors our neighbors and honors our Lord. 
we are going to change things around here. Let's be changing them through the gospel. The second way that we live honorably among unbelievers is this. Christians are to actively promote human flourishing. Christians are to actively promote human flourishing. Let's go to the text again, verse 14 through 16. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We'll come back to that in a second. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's talking about unbelievers. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter mentions twice here that Christians are not just to believe true things, but we are, to, are commanded to do good deeds also, so that unbelievers will see them and they will glorify God. That's the end result of us doing these public, visible good deeds. That means that possibly, they will possibly believe in our God based on the things that they see the church doing. They might be converted, they might go from enemies to friends. There is change happening. This is how it happens. I mean, this is what Peter says here in these verses is nearly verbatim of what Jesus taught him back in Matthew 5, 16, if you remember this. Jesus says in that same way, remember he's talking about a, the, the, a light and he's talking about being a city on a hill, right? Well, we're a, we're a house or a building. There's structure, city has structure. And then he goes, Jesus says this, in that same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not to you and I, but to our Father who lives in heaven. They might become Christians. How can I get in on that? Doing good, when Peter talks about doing good, and I thought about this, what does he mean by that? Well, Doing good must mean more than merely obeying the law. That is part of that, but it can't be that's the only thing he's talking about. And I think that because if you remember, you go back to the tail end of verse 14, he says that governors are are, um, to praise those that do good. They're to praise those that do good. These are unbelieving governors, by the way. They praise those that do good. I've never, ever had the governor come to my house and praise me for obeying the law. Like, not even one time. And he probably never will. I've never had a police officer stop at my house and say, I just want to thank you for obeying all these laws all these years. Way to go, Chad. We're really proud of what you've done. I've never done that. Why? Because that's the bare minimum. That's like passive. That's like passively how we promote good, right? Right? So doing good, whatever Peter means by that, it's got to mean something that goes beyond that, right? And it must mean actions that both believers and unbelievers can agree uh, on that are good. Otherwise, it would not be praiseworthy actions in the eyes of unbelievers. So there is some common ground here between believers and unbelievers about what is good. So it has to be something that's held in common, right? Right? And it's got to be more than just this personal piety of living a moral life. 
These are external things, not just being a good moral person. These are good deeds that other people can see and go, yeah, that is good, what the church collectively is doing as a people. A dear friend of mine is a voice actor. He recently finished a documentary on the life of Billy Graham, uh, right before Billy Graham died, actually. And he had worked on this project for over two years of his life. He committed with a bunch of other people to help produce this over two years of his life. And what is amazing to me, personally amazing to me, is that my friend is not a Christian. And he actually really disagrees with Billy's stance on several issues that are important, like abortion and sexuality. He really disagrees with him and what he taught, what he stood for. Yet he said that Billy, uh, he said that Billy made mistakes, he got something wrong, some things wrong, but he found Billy's life as a whole body of work to be, quote, compelling and inspiring and profound, close quote. My friend committed over two years of his life to telling the story of Billy Graham's life to the whole world, a man he disagreed with because overall he found the things that he did as a Christian promoted the common good. That's what he thought about him. Brothers and sisters, this is how all unbelievers should see us as a church. They should see us in the same way. They may disagree with us. They will see the mistakes that we make, and we should apologize when we make them, and they call us out for that. But at the end of the day, they should say, they should be forced to say, well, overall, the Christians are doing good for all people, not just their people. We can see with our own eyes that Christians really are promoting human flourishing in our society. Peter says that it is God's will. That's pretty strong words, right? He says that it is God's will for us as long as we are on the earth to silence the slanderous things that people will say about Christians and the gospel by doing things that promote human flourishing for all people in society. That's part of what we're supposed to be doing, our mission. Now let me ask you a question, Crossway. How are we doing with that job? Is that the reputation we have? Like if you were to give a letter grade to Christians to us, what letter grade would you give us? A, B minus, where are we at? You see, there can be a tendency for Christians to think of themselves as tourists here on earth instead of resident aliens. You guys know the worst tourists? The worst tourists, they treat someone else's home like it's their own personal playground. Hey, I paid my money to come here. I'll put my feet up on the couch if I want to, right? This is the worst kind of tourists. 
They treat someone else's home like it's their playground. They just came for what they can use and buy and consume, and they usually leave things worse than they found them when they leave in two weeks because they're only going to be here two weeks. They're takers. They're not givers. They're consumers. They're not cultivators. Everybody else cultivates so the tourists can come and consume. Never mind the effect it has on the local society or the local customs or the local economy or the environment. And after a while, that has a negative effect on the locals that call that town their home. There's, just, there's some negative buildup that happens after a while. And I should know I used to live in a tourist town. I was a citizen that, in a town that tourists would come to. And you could feel it. Peter is telling us something that's really important, guys, that we need to get, okay? Peter is telling us that the people of God are not just tourists visiting this planet for a little while. We are not just here to snap some photos, make some personal memories, eat up all the food, and use up all the resources of our society, and then just kind of jet out of here in a few years or when we die. That's not our calling while we are here in exile, Peter says that we are servants of God, of God. We're servants of God while we're here. So even though the church may be living in exile here, God has actually, God has actually sent us into the society. That didn't happen on accident. He sent us into society to serve the people around us by actively promoting human flourishing for all people. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful picture of being the people of God. This is, by the way, this is very similar to what God told his people through the prophet of Jeremiah. Just listen to the similarity to what Peter is saying and listen to what God was saying to Israel. And by the way, we're the people of God. We talked about the last two weeks, so listen to this. This is amazing. Jeremiah 29, 4-7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. And by the way, Peter is, says he's writing from Babylon. If you go to the very end of the chapter, very end of chapter five, at the end of the epistle. What's he doing? We're the people of God. He makes, makes sure we don't miss this. So here's what God says to the people that are in exile. Build houses. Don't go down to REI and get a tent, a little temporary dwelling place. You're going to be here a while, guys. So get a construction job and build some really quality houses because you're going to be living in them a while in exile. Build houses. Get a construction job. Build up houses where you're living. Live in them. Go ahead and unpack the, all the boxes. You're moved in. This is what he's saying. I want you to feel this. Plant gardens. Doesn't it take a while for a garden to grow and get some fruit from it? Plant gardens and eat their produce. Quit bumming off everybody else. In fact, maybe you might make enough to give to everyone else. Eat their produce. Go ahead and take wives. Make babies. You're going to be here a while. So have sons, have daughters. You know what? Go ahead, take wives for your sons and your daughters. They're going to be here a while too. 20 years, 
30, 40. It's going to be generational. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Listen to this. Multiply there and do not decrease. Don't live that slim down deal. Be a resident. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Why? For in its welfare... You will find your welfare. Isn't that incredible? Brothers and sisters, God did not save us and leave us in Kitsap County merely to use up our hospitals and use our school and use our grocery store and use her roadways like tourists until it's time for us to die. That's not why he saved us and put us here in Kitsap County or brought us here. That's not why he did that. He brought us here. He's left us here for a grander, beautiful purpose. We are put here to be a blessing to our town. We are to be a blessing to our community. We are here to plant. We are here to build. We are here to cultivate. Instead of complaining about the schools and then abandoning them, Christians can choose to actively enter them, help them flourish, make them better. Christians can choose to make it flourish instead of complaining about the hospitals. Go work in them. Make them better. Be an administrator and change some of that stuff. Instead of complaining about the homeless youth, Christian can choose to go into the streets and help them not be homeless. Help them flourish and read and write and know how to interview and write a resume and get a job. We can do that. We can make it different. Why? Because that is what Christ has done for us, has he not? Has he not made our life flourish in every way? Amen. This is the gospel. Christ did not come merely to save only our soul and thereby make us less than human. No, rather, Christ came to restore our whole being and actually make us more human. When you follow Jesus, you do not become less human. You become more human. He is a restoring God. That's what the resurrection tells us. We'll talk about more of that in a few weeks on Easter. But this is why our church partners with Coffee Oasis and we partner with Prison Mission Association, both financially and with volunteer hours to help homeless youth, to help people that are in prison so they can be restored to themselves and restored to their families and restored to society because we believe as Christians who know the full gospel and believe the full gospel, that if they do well, we all do well. And that brings more glory to God, not less glory to God. Amen. Amen. But these are not the only ways that you can do this. They're just some ways that are available to you right away. One of the most godly things that you could do, brothers and sisters, as a Christian, is start a business in Port Orchard. That's actually a really godly Christian thing to do. Or build a road. Or to work for the waste department. Or to educate the minds of children because you are promoting human flourishing for the whole society when you do that. You're being a servant of God. You are leaving it better than the way you found it when you do that. You are serving Port Orchard and acting like servants of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? 
The church is not called to abandon society, nor are we called to upend society. We are called by God to live within it, to live within society and pursue peace with the government and promote human flourishing as much as we possibly can at this time. That is what God has called us to do. And guys, listen, I know that is really hard to do when people make the lives of Christians harder. They don't want to do that for them, right? Okay, I don't. Maybe you do. And so I'm going to be honest with you guys. I want to be real. I, I realized this as I was going over this this week. I am only, to, only able to live this way and burn those kind of calories and invest that kind of money and time. I'm only able to live this way, the way that God wants me to live, when I realize that Jesus lived this way for me because he knew I wouldn't live this way on my own. I wouldn't. And so he lived that way for Chad Lingle. Jesus obeyed pagan civil authorities for me because he knew that I'm actually, I have an insurrectionist heart. And I don't want to obey anybody. And he knew that about me. So he said, I know you won't do it. You can't do it. I'll do it for you. Jesus did things to promote human flourishing for all people. And he did it for me because he knew that I had a consumerist, tourist heart. I don't care about my neighbor. I really don't. And he knew that about me. He says, I'll do it for you, Chad. And Jesus knew that for me to live that way would destroy my life. Would destroy me. To live like a rebel, to live like a consumer will destroy all of us. And so because Jesus loved us, in fact, because Jesus loved the world, he entered into that and did something about it. Isn't that amazing? Jesus lived the life that we could not live, and he died the destructive death that we should have died so that through his resurrection, we can live that life in our society, in Kitsap County. Isn't that an unbelievably humble and wonderful king? Isn't that a great king? Praise his name. Amen, somebody. Let's pray to that king. Would you bow down your head and pray? Dear Jesus, it's become plain to me that we have a lot to learn about being the church. And you are a great God that has shown us the way. So Lord, today we pray that we wouldn't be looking outside at everybody else. But we look in our own heart and we're truly in us, we're not really that law-abiding as we think we are. We're kind of resentful that we have to obey anybody's rules, including yours. And that we're really kind of tourists and consumers at heart. But that you are so great, you are so loving, 
and you looked at us and you looked at what was going on. You said, I am going to do something about it. Even though it'll destroy me, I love them so much. So Lord, would you please give us a picture of what we get to participate with you in, what you have truly called us in. Give us a picture of the, this, how big your good news is. Lord, would you help us? Would you help Crossway gain that reputation that you want us to have in our families, but also in our neighborhood? That people would say, wow, you guys, in the end, you're good for society. You're good for us. We're glad the Christians are here. We're glad the Christians are here, even though they're weird. Oh, we love you, Jesus. Restore us so we can help restore others in your name and for your glory and praise. Amen.